This is the Beautiful Writers Podcast. I'm Linda Sievertson, and today I bring you the New York Times bestselling author and screenwriter Charles Saylor, whose novel, The Second Son, sold 6 million copies in the late 70s and had a massively profound influence on my young life and future career. Uncle Chuck, as I call him, was my late father's best friend and honorary little brother, and I was lucky enough to grow up with a front row seat to his merry magic making, details of which we're about to share, but you might have a hard time believing. As for his bio, aside from starring in theater and on popular soap operas, Chuck has authored more than 40 scripts for television programs, including Kojak and The Rockford Files and the debut episodes of both Chips and Charlie's Angels. But it was writing The Second Son that would change his life forever. Chuck, like his novels, is bigger than life. Just as an example, I remember the day MGM announced that they had purchased the rights to his first novel and that the production was going to have a bigger budget than Gone with the Wind. I was a teenager when everyone in LA, Redford, Newman, Stallone, wanted to star in the film or direct it, and the way in which Chuck blocked production in order to hold his creative vision makes him crazy or courageous. You decide for yourself. All I know is this. As I think of how blessed I've been throughout my life to befriend and be mentored by such legendary talents as past interviewees Lisa Gibbons and Paul Williams and Guru Singh and Chuck Saylor, I realize that one of the great joys of doing this podcast is sharing their wisdom, experience, and inspiration with you from my experience. It's starting to feel a little like episodes of This Is Your Life. (laughs) But since we talk about universal topics, I think that's kind of cool because I truly believe their unlimited thinking can apply to anyone and rubs off like fairy dust. I hope you think so too. I hope you love my Uncle Chuck, an amazingly smart, wickedly funny, heartfelt soul. He is somehow old Hollywood and new thought all at once and has the most amazing insights into writing, crafting bestsellers and courting magic. I can't wait to get started. Welcome. Hey, Chuck. How you doing, kid? <laughs> I'm so good, and it always makes me so happy when you call me kid. You have called me kid my whole life, and I'm 52 years old now, and I really appreciate being called kid. Well, you're still a kid to me. <laughs> you are the reason that I'm a writer. You're it. It's totally your fault. The disease happened because of you. I mean, remember, mom and dad had that library in the house. Right. But it was when you were on book tour for The Second Son. In my memory, I'm 15 years old, and I went around on your radio TV tour with you that day in the limo going, okay, this is the bee's knees. And you would stop, (laughs) and you would go, you would go up stairs and do some TV show, and I'd be down with the driver going, okay, I always wanted to be a writer, but now I'm really sure I'm going to have to figure this out because I want to be driven around in limos. Well, also, do you remember that you and Carol took the limo down to where you were living at the time? The publishers had given me the limo uh, like 24-7, you know, it was like... And uh, so I went down and told the driver, I said, look, take the girls anywhere they want to go. And you headed home. And you guys picked up a bunch of your friends. And the limo driver said, hell, I was driving them all over the place. (laughs) No, I have no memory of that. Yeah, you did go around with me uh, 
when I was doing the radio and television shows and newspaper interviews in San Francisco that day. So we winged it. But the publishers had sent me on a uh, 37-city tour where I did 132 television shows, 102 radio interviews, and 51 newspaper interviews in 37 cities in 43 days. (laughs) Oh, that sounds grueling. I mean, a great problem to have, but grueling. Yeah, it was. And at the time, you know, Second Son was the largest first printing in the history of the United States with a million two first. And it hit the New York Times bestseller list in eight days. And, yeah, just, uh, as a, just as a comparison, when my first book came out, the first printing was 10,000. So if you had a 1.2 million, that just shows, number one, the publisher is expecting high sales. Number two, incredible support, right? And number three, it means you're in every venue, whereas with me, with 10,000, my relatives were calling me from Seattle or from Chicago saying, I saw you on TV, I know the book is out, and I can't find it. They would go to Tower Records on Sunset, and it was sold out, and they couldn't find it places. That's what happens when you have a small printing, which sucks. Yeah, no, I was uh, very fortunate When I came up with the story for Second Son, I was actually looking for another venue to write in or write around. I had just finished producing and writing a movie of the week for MGM and CBS called The Hostage Heart, which dealt with (laughs) medical stuff. And I was looking for another arena to write in. And I decided it should be iron workers because nobody had done anything around that that I had remembered. And back then when movies of the week were really hot, the first three minutes was called The Hook. And you had to really hook the audience with that first three minutes so that they came back after that first block of commercials to watch the movie of the week. So I decided I was going to write in the ironworker arena and that the hook would be an ironworker that would fall off of a building and live through the fall. And I spent about two weeks trying to figure out how, you know, this ironworker could live through the fall. And I went yeah. through all the freak accidents and wind and all sorts of things. And finally, I was out walking my dog at about 11 o'clock at night, still trying to figure it out. And across the street from me, Betty Davis was living on Havenhurst in a high-rise apartment building. No And she was in one of the penthouses. And I had just had a party that night for Barbara, my wife at the time, or not. We'd already been divorced, but I was throwing a surprise birthday party for her. And we'd had the party, and uh, Betty Davis had sent some guy down to tell me to turn the music down or something. So the party's (laughs) over. I'm outside. I'm walking the dog, and I'm trying to figure this opening out. And that voice in my mind said, Chuck, nobody is going to live through a fall like that off of a high-rise building, you know, Mm -hmm. unless God wants them to. And I remember I stopped mid-step and 
said to myself, well, who would God save? And, uh, of course, the first thing that came to my mind was Jesus. And my voice in my head said, you can't write a movie of the week about Jesus, an iron worker. And that voice in my head said, well, why couldn't it be another son of God with a whole new message to humanity? I thought, whoa, this is a great idea for a story. So I went back in the house, and the actress I was living with, and we won't mention her name, I said, honey, I just came up with the answer to the hook in that movie of the week. And she said, well, what is it? I said, he's another son of God. And she said, Chuck, you've been smoking too much of that shit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, those were your smoking days. They were indeed. As a matter of fact, that night I think I was smoking, you know, a good joint of a wine. And uh, no, which I really minute. liked because it gave you an ethereal high. When okay. I uh, decided to do Second Son as a novel, I was partnered with a producer who said, you've got to write it as a book. I said, I can't write it as a book. We went to NBC and CBS, and NBC offered me a 10-hour miniseries off of the story pitch book, and CBS offered me an eight-hour miniseries, and uh, this producer said, you've got to write this as a book. This is a best-selling story. So uh, I decided to write it as a book, and Nathaniel Brandon, who was Anne Rand's close friend mm-hmm. and a psychologist, a fairly famous one, I was uh, seeing him at the time, and Nathaniel said, you can do this. You can. Don't worry about it. He says, I've got an editor who has edited my psych books for me, and I'll loan her to you. So I hired this editor, Sherry Adrian, and my ex-wife, Barbara George, and uh, I set about writing the great American novel. Well, uh, it kind of worked out that way, actually. It kind of did. Second Son's become a classic, and uh, it has surprised the shit out of me. (laughs) (laughs) I have an epiphany I want to share with you. But first, I want to say about this Second Son becoming a classic. A couple of years ago, I was having lunch with an entertainment lawyer at Marmalade's on Ventura, and we were just talking. He wanted to work with a couple of my clients, and he said, Linda, what's on your bucket list that you haven't done yet? And I said, you know, there's this book. I said, my uncle wrote this book, and I, as a kid, it's the reason I'm a writer, and I just love this story more than anything, and I've helped him do light edits on the script when the Baldwin brothers, not Alec Baldwin brothers, but Baldwin, the Ray Academy Award-winning producers for Ray, when they were attached, he wrote the script, Howard Baldwin. He wrote the script, and I helped do a little edits. I was attached as a producer for a little while as we were shopping it around. I said, this thing has had many people interested from Stallone and Redford and Newman, and everybody wanted to star in it in the late 70s. And for whatever reason, there's been a block. I said, Chuck mostly pulled it, but since then, there's been huge names attached, and it's just been blocked. And I know it's going to hit, and I think... 
more than anything in my career, I want to see that book made into a film and whatever I can do about that. And he said, oh, my God, you're not talking about the second son, are you? And I said, yeah. How do you know that? He said, Linda, that book is the reason I'm in Hollywood. It's the reason why I'm a producer. It's the reason why I came to this town to tell stories. And I couldn't believe it. But I've met so many people who have said that to me, like, oh, my God, you know Charles Taylor? That book is the reason why I'm in this industry. Well, those are kind words, and no author knows how to take those. But I thank you very much, and I thank him very much. And I I know you've had a wonderful career so far, and I'm sure it's going to become even bigger and brighter and better as you move forward. And I can only hope the same for him. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he, like me, is just sort of a dog with a bone. We just keep doing the same things every day. And, you know, eventually, I think half of success is just sticking with something, right? You just keep doing it. Yeah. When Second Son came out, I had an opportunity to meet a lot of people in the business I hadn't met before, one of which was John Huston. And he was shooting a film in Atlanta, and an actress I was dating was in this film with John. And John uh, said, kind of like the producer that uh, you were having lunch with mentioned to you, John said, you're not the guy who wrote The Second Son, are you? And I said, yes, I am. He says, I really love your book a lot. He said, but prepare yourself. It's going to be a long journey. I said, what do you mean? MGM has bought the screen rights. All of these people want to star in it and everything. He says, yeah, I know. He says, but I had the man who would be king for 20 years before I could get the finance. And he said, Second Son is a big canvas story like the man who would be king. So plan on at least 20 years. And he said, Chuck, I really love your book a lot, but you're not Rudyard Kipling. If you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. I know. And you know, it's so interesting, though. It really depends on fate. And my sister would even say somebody's astrological chart. It depends on the culture. It depends on the economy. Because my friend Janet Yang, who used to be Oliver Stone's producing partner at Ixlin, she made Amy Tan a deal for the Joy Luck Club to bring it to the screen, which she did, when Amy was still writing the damn book. I mean, Amy was faxing Janet Yang pages of her novel before the book was even finished, Oliver Stone and Janet decided to take it to the screen. But more than not, It's the 20-year stories I hear. And, in fact, what Janet told me was that in her producing career, you know, she's won all kinds of awards, Emmys, everything. But she has said to me the average time to take something to the screen is 15 years. It's a hurry-up-and-wait business, just like publishing, more so than publishing, I would say. And just maddening. It's maddening. Yeah, it is. I've been fortunate that so many people have wanted to do – Second Son, and I think the it's hiccup... It's an option forever. It's been an well, option hic- forever, right? Every six months or every year, you get paid another option fee, and somebody else takes it, and <laughs> you just keep getting paid. Actually, you know, what's happened is 
MGM wanted uh, Stallone to star in Second Son back in the day when Stallone was number one box office and the right age. And I didn't think Stallone was right for it at the time. And MGM had given me a firm pay-and-play contract to play John Stanton in the movie, which was like second lead. So I told Dick Shepard, and at the time, there were a lot of people who wanted to do Second Son, one of which was David Lean wanted to direct it. And David had said it was the best story to come down the pike in 50 years. And MGM would not let Lean direct it because he'd had a mild heart attack about 18 months previous. Stallone wanted to star in it and direct it and produce it and write it and everything. And I just didn't feel he was right to be the star of the thing. I thought he could certainly direct it and produce it and but I didn't think you he wanted was right. an unknown. As I remember, you wanted an unknown in that role. Right? I did. Yes, I did. And surround him with stars. And but this I, was before CGI, so it was going to be too expensive. Is that correct? Because you had the mass scenes at the Vatican and in New York City with millions of people, and they couldn't do that without massive budget. No, well, it was a massive budget, but. They were willing to spend that money to do it if I would allow Stallone to star in it. And I told Ron Meyer and Sly that I thought he would be great to be Joseph's good friend, iron worker in the piece, maybe third lead or whatever, but I didn't really think he should do the film. And uh, I told Dick Shepard at MGM, who was the president at the time, I said, Dick, if you hire Sly, I've got a very good doctor in Beverly Hills that's going to put me in the hospital about every other week, and I'll shut the production down. And there was no way for MGM to get around pay and play contract. Normally, those are pay or play, where they can give you the or they can play you in the role, but I had gotten a pay and play. And MGM got rather pissed off at me. Yeah, Chuck, that's high freaking maintenance, dude. That's like trying to bully a studio. Are you kidding me? No wonder you live in Aspen. You can't stay in this town doing that crap. No. (laughs) My mom always said that about you. My mom was always like, he's such a rebel. Alfred, my dad. Alfred, your best friend is such a rebel. I think she secretly really admired you for it. But, man, that's uh, balls. Yeah, I'll tell you. Finally, MGM, in the late 80s, 88, I think, was going to sell the rights to Second Son, but they wouldn't sell them to me. So I spoke with your dad, who represented me uh, with uh, Payne Weber, and I said, Al, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm looking at all options, including buying the studio. (laughs) Which is insane, by the way. Yeah, and your dad said, give me a couple of days, Chuck. So about a week later, Al called me and he said, okay, Payne Weber has put together a consortium out of Holland, a real estate consortium that (laughs) 
you the money to tender for MGM. And they're this sending... This was Dad's idea? Well, you know, I said I wanted to buy the studio. Your dad said he'd figure out how to get the money. Oh, my God, that was so my father. Like, such an unlimited thinker, because that's asinine for a stockbroker in the Silicon Valley to tell you, an actor, screenwriter in Los Angeles, that he's going to help you buy a freaking studio? That's insane. Right. So we got this letter of credit from the Dutch with immediate drawdown for a billion seven to tender for MGM. And I said, well, go ahead, let's do it. He said, well, the first thing we have to do is notify the target. So we have to notify MGM that we're coming at them with a tender offer. And the Dutch would do the deal because MGM at the time was one company. It had the studio under its umbrella as well as all the hotels and casinos and everything around the world. So, so, for, and so they, forgive me, Chuck, is this like a hostile takeover you were planning? Yeah. With my because sweetest pie father who didn't have like a mean bone in his body, you were going to take, okay, never mind, keep going. Yeah. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. they would not sell me the rights to Second Son back. <laughs> okay. So I said, well, fuck it, let's buy the studio. Of so course. We got I mean, what else could you do? Nothing. So we got this letter. <laughs> <laughs> we got this letter of credit with immediate drawdown, and Payne Weber, New York, made the call to MGM to tell them that we were prepared to tender for all of MGM's shares, and that I was the one doing it. So, immediately, Kirk Kerkorian, chairman of the board of MGM, the owner of MGM and everything, yeah. Kirk Kerkorian called an emergency meeting of the board of directors, and they took MGM, which was a single publicly traded company, and split it into two. And they split the studio off from the hotels and the casinos, and it made the deal with the Dutch untenable for them because I wanted the studio, and I wanted Second Son back, and they wanted the real estate as collateral, and it was no longer going to be under the same publicly traded umbrella. So that ended up killing the deal. And the only good thing that came out of that was it looked like I had borrowed a billion seven for a month and paid it <laughs> off. And I remember getting all sorts of calls for whether or not I wanted to borrow money to take over any other companies. But, <laughs> but no, my hostile takeover of MGM didn't work. I didn't end up with the rights, and they ended up selling them to a producer, a wonderful guy, and they stuck a 10% gross clause into the deal when they sold him the rights in perpetuity. And it was because of this 10% gross clause that Second Son couldn't get made. So everybody who came and wanted to make Second Son was running up against this 
clause where MGM would get 10% of the gross proceeds or gross profits. Oh, wow. Nobody yeah. can make any money if somebody's got 10% of the gross. You just can't Right. Get they it. always say in Hollywood, don't attach too many writers or people to your projects. or It'll inhibit them from getting made. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Dick Shepard had been the president, and he did a press release that Second Son was going to be their biggest film since Gone with the Wind. And he was replaced by the guy who ran Warner Brothers that was cashing all of our checks. (laughs) (laughs) He ended up killing himself, committing suicide. No kidding. Yeah. Anyway, he came in and he was at Dick Shepard's reception and I said to him, there's no way you can make Second Son because if you make it and it's a success, it'll be Dick's success for bringing it to the studio. If you make it and it's a failure, it'll be your failure for not seeing Dick's short-sightedness. And if you sell it to another studio and they have a hit film, your shareholders will lynch you in front of the Thalberg building. So it's you, it's you that planted that in his mind, which killed it for sure. Yeah, well, that was just within a few days of me tendering for the whole company. You're just certifiable, Chuck. I know, but it's been so much fun. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God, this is why my father loved you, because my father was just so stable, right? Just the best family guy, so stable, but he had a love of the dramatic. It's just he wasn't willing to live it out. So he keeps you around to go live it out. Oh, yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. I love it. You are our family entertainment. (laughs) Well, I don't know if I was the family entertainment so much as I was the other side of the pendulum for Al. Al kept me stable. Al and I I tried every way I could to build his book of clients. I think I sent Al over 2,000 clients. So it was because of you that we got to go to Puerto Vallarta as Dad topped the sales charts at the office. Well, yeah, and it was because of (laughs) you got to graduate from USC. and No. Three classes shy. Remember, I quit. Oh, yeah, that's right. You won. That's another story. That's a story for later. That's okay. You know, the thing is, you can become a success at anything you're willing to devote 10,000 hours to. Yes. If I was a brain surgeon, I could take you into brain surgery with me for 10,000 hours. And at the end of the 10,000 hours... I could walk out and you could finish up. Yep. It's a matter of devoting the time to whatever it is you want. If you want to be a writer, devote the time. I would get up every morning, make my coffee, and sit right down and begin writing. And I would write from 9 in the morning till noon. And then I'd head to Santa Anita or Hollywood Park for lunch with Jack Klugman or Walter Matthau or Mickey Rooney. And I got to meet so many neat people at the racetrack that were in the business. So, uh, yeah, gosh, those were 
wonderful days, and I don't miss them, but I'm <laughs> sure glad I had them. Yeah, yeah. Well, so this past September, Stallone had a couple of producers get in touch with me because he wanted to make Second Son and to make it right, and he just wants to direct and produce. And I said, I have said all along that there would never be anything, any problem with him producing or directing. I really like those. And he's much too yeah. old now at 70, almost 71, to play Joseph. So I put Sly and this producer, Bernard Nussbaumer, together. And I love uh, Bernard. Yeah, I love Bernard, too. He's one of the nicest human beings yep. anyone yep. will ever meet. So to get around the uh, 10% gross deal to MGM, I told Stallone and these two producers that were working for him, I said, if it's made as a series, there is some gross up front, but the majority of it comes on the back end. So, as of yesterday, or I guess, I'm told that there's a deal that the paperwork is in the process and Amazon's going to make it uh, with Stallone, and they want to go ahead and do a theatrical movie and then go right to series. And I think use the theatrical as like the pilot to the series or whatever. So and guess what that means? You have the rights to the book now. So I do. In back in really 90, good position. Yeah, back in '96, <laughs> I went to buy a thousand copies of Second Son. I used to give them to uh, the crews of a lot of our naval vessels and stuff like that, and. I was the honorary captain of the USS Carl Vinson, which happens to be in the news a lot right now. And I got in touch with the publishers, and the book was out of print. And right. my uh, agents with ICM, when they made my deal, put a clause in my literary contract that said if Second Son ever fell out of print that I could force another 5,000-copy run, both paperback and hardback. So I am... Interesting clause. Yeah, so I invoked this clause 16 in my contract with Avon and Doubleday, and I sent the heads of both publishing houses a letter, and I said, look, you've had the book for 17 years or however long it had been, and Nothing is happening with it, and I'm going to invoke Clause 16. You've got 30 days to comply. But to tell you the truth, I'd just as soon have the publishing rights back, both foreign and domestic. So now I've got the publishing rights to The Second Son. So I've got it up on Amazon and Barnes & Noble Nook and iBooks and you can get it in print or download. And, and, and you know what's uh, amazing I, about that? I was looking yesterday. You have something like 180 reviews on Amazon, and they're mostly five stars. And that cracks me up, Chuck, because I know you. You're doing no marketing. 
This is strictly people finding it on their own. I mean, you are the last person to be doing social media or any of that. And I know people who they put a title up on Amazon or their publisher puts a title up on Amazon and they're celebrities and they don't have but 50 reviews. You have so many more reviews than the average person and you're doing nothing to get those. That's just the power of the book. When I wrote Second Son, I sat down to write a bestseller. I was writing a lot of television at the time, and I took a year away in order to write the book. And I remember that Sherry Adrian said, well, if you're going to write this book, you've got to say something. And I said, I've got a pretty good idea what I want to say. And that is that we can all solve our own problems without going to the government who tells us when and if we can work and how much of our money we can keep and then they spend it on whatever the hell they want to spend it on or big business or organized labor or, you know, some of the larger religious institutions that tell you what's right and what's wrong and who to love and who to hate and how to live and how to die and then whether or not you get to go to heaven or hell. And <laughs> character just felt, Joseph felt that we had given away too much of our power as human beings to these yeah. uh, institutions, and that we should take that power back. So that was the message of the piece, and it resonated with the reader. When I came home from tour, I got a knock on my front door in Malibu, and it was the postmaster for Malibu. And he said, Mr. Sailor. I said, yes. He says, you're home. I said, yes. He says, can we deliver some mail we've been holding? I said, certainly. And uh -oh. he and two guys dragged eight sacks, <laughs> huge no. canvas sacks into my house of letters oh that had come from readers that, you know, had gone through the publishers and then sent by the publishers on. And I'd been gone for seven weeks, so it was a lot of mail, but it was about 40,000 letters. And it was so heartening to read some of these. You know, out of all of them, and I had a staff that worked for me at the time, we went through them all and we made a pile of which ones we thought were negative. And there were three letters in the negative pile. And two of them were just clippings from the Bible. And one oh, of wow. them was a letter from a gentleman who thought it was blasphemous of me to write a novel about another son of God, that there was only one yeah. son of God and I would be damned and all this. And I sent him what I thought was a very nice letter back. And I said, well... I know you probably read the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, read Job 1.6. And Job 1.6 says, And the day came when the sons of God came before the Lord, 
and Satan was amongst them himself, which meant that there were other sons of God. And in the Old Testament, they thought that Satan was a son of God who had, I don't know, I think sure. tried, tried to kill Jesus or something and was banished to the underworld by God. Okay, so I had an epiphany when you were talking, and I'm a little bit blown away here. Because I credit you in my mind and my heart and here publicly for being the inspiration behind my believing I could be a writer. But I, you could. I had no, um, but I, oh, thank you. But I had no idea how similar our stories were because you said that you were walking your dog and you stopped mid stride. And you had this epiphany about the story. And I don't know if you remember, but when I was first married and I had to figure out how to make a living, I was walking through your old neighborhood. I was walking through the streets of Beverly Hills. I didn't live there, but I, I went there for inspiration because it was so beautiful. And I parked my car in Oakhurst. And I got out and I was walking by these beautiful homes under these huge palm trees and ficuses the size of Jack's beanstalk, and I was praying and asking God to please show me what I could do that would be meaningful. And I stopped mid-stride. I had this full-blown vision of pet companion. I didn't even know there was such a thing as dog walking. I thought I had just made this vision up in my mind. But it was through dog walking that I met all of these very blessed people that gave me the dream that told me to write Life's Charmed, where I interviewed those people about their good fortune. And from a spiritual kind of perspective, all these different Hollywood types that I was working for. And I didn't realize that you also, so here I was idolizing you growing up. You were my vision of what an author could be. I didn't know any female authors. I knew you. So you were my vision. And how interesting to find out right now that my writing career manifested through a similar dog-walking, mid-stride vision that you had. How bizarre is that? It just goes to show you, if you want to be a writer, you better buy a dog. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I want to talk about, did you know as a kid that you wanted to be a writer? No. As a kid, I, uh, I think I wanted to be a border patrol officer. I grew up listening to the old radio shows. Every night as I would go to sleep, I would listen to Johnny Dollar or Inner Sanctum or Mr. First Nighter or just any number of the old radio shows. And that's how I went to sleep every night, listening to those uh, episodes. And when I was, uh, I guess, about 11, there was a summer stock company that came to my hometown every summer, and it was headed by Sidney Blackmer, who was a fairly well-known actor in the 30s, 40s, and into the 50s. So Sidney was doing Our Town, and uh, my parents and I went to a little hamburger joint in my hometown, and he was sitting at a table all by himself, and I asked him to join us. And he sat and ate with us, and a couple of weeks later, he called my parents and said, would it be all right if he gave me a small role, the role of Wally Webb in our town? 
So I did that with Mia Farrow was my sister. And anyway, I went on to do summer stock every summer with Sydney Blackmer's Salt Creek Summer Theater and did To Make a Million with Jack Carson and On Dean with Nina Foch and John Newland and did a show with Charlie Ruggles who taught me how to play poker. Uh, It was all the older stars that I worked with first. So when I came to Hollywood in the late 60s, 67, I was fortunate enough to have a end up having a mentor by the name of Cy Bartlett. And Cy wrote 12 O'Clock High and Cape Fear, and uh, he was Greg Peck's partner. But Mildred Cram and Cy Bartlett and some of the other people in size circle kept saying to me, you need to write. I would tell them stories of when I was in the military and working for the government. And Cy Bartlett had been second in charge of intelligence during World War II for the Air Force. And I was able to meet just wonderful people. And these folks are the ones who kept pressing me to write. They said, oh, you have to write these stories. You have to do this. You're a born writer. And as you know, I'm self-taught with everything. I never went to college. But I always tell people you're the smartest person I've ever met. I mean, we're, you probably can't talk about it, but weren't you in the CIA, Chuck? That was the rumor. Dad never confirmed it, but that was the rumor. No, but I was in military intelligence in the Army, and then I was attached to a different intelligence agency. (laughs) Okay. You don't have to say which one. I'm sure you can't. uh, No, well, I never really discuss it, but I did go to something like 31 countries in a little over two years, and I was very good at what I did. And I was so good at it that when I stopped doing it, the uh, FBI used to call to make sure I was okay. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, well, my point was they don't give high-ranking positions in the secret arms of our government to dummies. You're brilliant. And you use that brain of yours for your books. You know, The Man Who Wrote the Tiger, which is the novel that you most recently have written which I cannot believe you self-published because it's so riveting. It's so good. It's got all the bigger-than-life kind of themes that you had in Second Son. This one deals with communist China and kidnapping of high officials, and I don't want to give it away, but I was yeah, honored is, and grateful. Yeah, The Man Who Rode the Tiger. I read a small newspaper article once about a lady whose husband – was arrested in a foreign country, and she went to our government, and our government said, you know, you're shit out of luck. (laughs) You know, you've got to take care of it yourself. There's not much we can do to help you. And that always stuck in my mind, and I decided to write this story to show that what can happen if one person decides to, well, take matters into their own hand, that they have the ability to change 
the world. And this is a story about a guy whose daughter is arrested in China and convicted and sentenced to death and what he does to get her back. And it's a good yarn. For me, Linda, it was kind of like going to the movie every day for two and a half years, I wrote, a little bit less than two and a half on this story. And I couldn't wait to get up to see where it was going. I've listened to some of the other interviews you've done with very accomplished authors, you know, people who make me look like a piker up here in the Rockies. But it was fun, and I did it. But, you know, I haven't had an agent for years. I gave up the business in the early 80s and just walked away and raised my kids and was Mr. Mom. And only when I finally said, well, okay, I'll write another book. I didn't have an agent to put it out to the publishers, and there was no choice but go ahead and self-publish. And other than just wanting to do it and enjoying the process, and as you know, I write longhand. Yep. So I write on yellow tablets. So this (laughs) book... Being 1,665 yellow tablet pages long. Yeah, crazy. uh, Yeah, and then I think it typed out to 900-something pages. Well, I did send it to a couple of agents, I remember, because it was right when I was going through my divorce, my nuke bomb, and I do remember sending it, sent it to Tina Bennett, who was at Janklo and Nesbitt, who is now at William Morris Endeavor. And so I sent it to a couple of agents, and it was too long, remember? Nobody could read it. They were all swamped. Everybody was dealing with their crazy schedules. And for whatever reason, there was just, well, the reason was divorce. I dropped the ball, and I think you just said, oh, screw it. Let's just, why am I waiting? Oh, kid, you didn't drop the ball. It was, you know, but (laughs) that doesn't matter. When Second Son comes out on Amazon or wherever it comes out, people read Second Son and enjoy that, which, you know, I'm so thankful that they do, then maybe they'll turn around and buy the man who rode the tiger. (laughs) No, no doubt. No doubt. So let me ask you, I want to switch a little bit and talk about, of all the venues that you have written for, television, screen, and books, which of the three do you prefer and why? I think I prefer books, novels. Because the writer can paint the picture instead of waiting for the director to do it. Oh, nice. And as you know from reading my work, I love to paint a picture with words. Oh, yeah. You're very cinematic in the way that you write. You always have been. You know, I want my reader to uh, see, feel, taste, smell every scene if I can. I try to get all of the senses into every scene. And in, in writing a novel, even your smallest character can have something special about them, even if they're only on one page, that the reader can go, oh, that reminds me of somebody. Or... 
yes, you know, I've seen that before. Paying tribute to your characters is imperative. They all have to be able to stand as individuals, and your reader has to uh, really be able to see them and understand them, and that's why I like that venue more. You know, when I was writing television, I, as you know, I wrote Rockford Files and Kojaks and Charlie's Angels and just a whole plethora of 70s television. You just can't get the depth in, or I couldn't. And there are really good writers out there who do it all the time, but I couldn't get the visual in there as well as I would have liked or as well as I could with writing novels. So in answer to your question, novels. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I want to talk about putting yourself out there in chutzpah and how much easier it is to think out of the box and be sort of crazy when you're hungry, when you're desperate. And so I'm going to talk briefly about a personal experience, and then I want to go back in time to something you told me that you did when you were young that I've never forgotten. So when my son was younger and he was thinking about what he was going to do for his life and he was complaining about the job market, I guess he was working at the time for a clothing store. And he was just like, oh, it's so hard and there's so much competition. And I said, Tosh, you've got to get creative. You know, you can't sit and wait for the phone to ring. You've got to create your own good fortune. And he's looking at me like, Mom, what the hell are you talking about? So I told him a couple of examples. I said how I had gone to the Bodhi Tree Bookstore, which at the time was one of the top spiritual bookstores in the world, and how we lived nearby and I was obsessed with the store and I wanted to work there. And I went to apply and somebody there took me aside and said, hey, just to give you a heads up, we get something like 50 applications a week and we're not hiring, people hardly ever quit, pretty much there's no chance, right? So I went back a month later and I heard that they were not looking for anybody. And so I went home and I wrote the Bodhi Tree owners a love letter, three pages about every book I had ever read that they carried, which was hundreds, right? And I told them why I loved those titles and how those books had changed my life and that I wanted to be an ambassador for those books to their patrons. Of course, I was hired immediately, right? I got an immediate phone call. And it was such a great gig. And my son was shocked, like, Mom, you did that? And I said, yeah. Cut to a year later, I'm shelving books at that store, and I have this total realization that not every one of those 30,000 titles in the store was written by someone smarter than me, right? So it gave me permission to be a writer. I didn't do it for a couple years, but it gave me permission. So Cut to years later, I had my first book party, and I had to figure out where to host it. And so I asked the owners at the Buddy Tree if they would let me host it at their store, and I would have it catered. And they said, yes, I invited everyone I knew. And the owners, Stan and Phil, tell me to this day, still, because the store, they don't have the brick-and-mortar store, although they're doing new stuff. But to this day, they write to me, we're still friends, and they say, you know, Lynn, That was the most successful signing in the history of our store. So I said to my son, get creative. When I created my first business, I wanted to be outside. I wanted to have freedom. I didn't know what I was going to do. I prayed and suddenly I see this dog walking business that led to everything else I did because my clients ended up being the people I wrote about. So on the one hand, I trained my son to believe that spiritually there's always enough to go around 
But on the other hand, I've trained them to be practical, I hope. And there are billions of people, right? Most everybody is creative if they listen to it. And competition is fierce. So you have to believe in yourself. You have to put yourself out there. God works through people. We have to show the universe and everyone in it that we're willing to hit the dusty trail and do the work, right? Which brings me to a story. I don't know if you remember this, but you said the funniest thing. I've never forgotten it. Years and years ago, you were telling me about you were in Mexico. Your dad had buku dollars, right? But he wasn't sharing. And you sent your dad a note about not having any fun. Do you remember that? No mun, which means money. No mun, no fun, your son, or something like that, right? Is that right? right. Now, what did, and what did he wrote no, back? Exactly what happened was I was 16, and I convinced my parents I was going to this exclusive prep school in North Carolina. And I convinced my parents to let me go to a small college for some summer courses in Saltillo, Mexico. So I got down there, and of course, I didn't realize all the courses were in Spanish, so I was having to take all my notes phonetically. And I was living with a family in Saltillo, actually the mayor of Saltillo's home, but I would go out at night and party like a maniac at 16. And the mayor said, well, you can't stay in our home. You can't be coming in at 1 o'clock in the morning every day. We just can't have this. You'll have to find someplace else to live. So I sent my dad a telegram. I said, there's been a death in the family. (laughs) And I have to find another place to live. And... I ended the telegram, and I said, also, no mun, no fun, your son. And he sent me a telegram right back. It said, too bad, so sad, your dad. (laughs) So I walked about three blocks up the hill from where I was staying, and I saw a house for rent, and I went in and spoke with the owner and found out how much it was a month, and it was $200 a month. That was a lot of money back in 1963. And I immediately went to the college, and there were a bunch of American girls that were taking courses there, and I said, look, I said, I will rent you rooms for $10 a day in your room and board, and we'll have the whole house. So I got seven girls to rent rooms, so I was taking $70 a day in. So I got a cook, a gardener, and a maid. What more could a 16-year-old hope for? (laughs) (laughs) So Chuck, do you read the work of others while you're writing? When I listened to the Pressfield podcast that you did, you asked him, what authors, contemporary authors that he read. So I put a little list together for you in case you asked me or if you didn't, I was going to bring it up. I think everybody should read some William Martin. I think James Lee Burke is maybe, well, I've read everything James Lee Burke has ever written. And his latest book, I just finished. Burke, to me, is the 
wordsmith of our time. Wow. That's a compliment. Yeah. I was once asked by somebody how I wanted to die. And I said, let me die in bed reading a paragraph of James Lee Burke. And Nikos Kazantzakis' Last Temptations of Christ is so well written and translated, I think everybody should read it. I read Daniel Silva whenever he has a new book that comes out. Bob Parker was an acquaintance of mine. He wrote the Spencer novels. And as I mentioned, William Martin is a really good author, and you might want to start with The Lost Constitution. A good title. I was listening to Stephen Pressfield's podcast that you did with him, and one of the things I definitely agreed with him on was when you're writing, you're actually putting pen to paper or doing it digitally or whatever you do, don't read anybody else's work. Pressfield said, don't read anybody's novels, but he does read some nonfiction when he's doing yeah. it. Some nonfiction is so good that it's almost like a novel. So in order not to be influenced and for your work to be as pure as possible, I would recommend you don't read anybody's anything while you're working. And I've found that right to classical music, whether you're a fan of it or not, and the reason is a lot of the pieces are so emotionally driven that the classical music will actually help drive your piece. Now, you may not use all of it, You may be listening to Dvorak when you should be listening to Mozart, but find classical that you do enjoy that has a uh, no lyrics. You don't want to listen to anything with lyrics because it'll it'll influence what you're writing. And it will actually get into your head and keep you from composing and I like to think of writing as if you were writing a symphony. The words should sing to your yeah. reader. They so you should... like crescendos. You like like Tchaikovsky? Yes. Uh, Beethoven? I do. Handel? I mean, yes. what are you talking about? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I listen to all of them. I have a group of about 30 classical CDs that I'll alternate depending on the type of scene that I'm writing, and it will be the back music. The best way to put it is that I wrote a scene in Second Son that took place in a Munich restaurant, and there was a huge storm sleeting and everything going on outside, and I said, outside it was sleeting and Beethoven. Inside, it was Flowers and Mozart. And that kind of encapsulates, you know, what I'm trying to say. Let the music help drive the emotion for you. Because if you're listening to highly emotional music, classical music, or at least for me, it helps me get into 
the rhythm that I need in the scenes. I had the pleasure of having spent a bit of time with Leon Uris, who I was a big fan of. And he also wrote to classical music. I'm thinking back to you and Dad. I mean, you bonded over music. My father was the librarian for the orchestra of the Bohemian Club, which was this incredible, is an incredibly elite men's club. My father could not have gotten in. He would not have been a regular member just because it was so elite. It was so expensive. I know he took you there a lot. Oh, you became a member, didn't you? I did, yeah. Normally, it's a uh, 26-year waiting list, and they took me into the Bohemian Club in three months. Yeah, yeah. And Dad was your sponsor, was he? I remember he took you there a lot. Yeah, he was one of two sponsors for me. Yeah, but the reason he got in there was, was he because he was born? a librarian for the orchestra, right? So Well, and he father, also played a beautiful French horn. Yes, he did. I have such and, beautiful uh, pictures of the two of you at summer camp. <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh, my gosh, I love those pictures so much. But my grandmother raised my father as he was a baby. She would put him to sleep in his crib right next to the radio, and he would have classical music playing all the time. She felt like that would help his brain. And as you know, he could hear anything, anything on the radio and tell you, who wrote it, what year, who was the symphony that was playing it, who the composer was, who the conductor was. He was like a parlor show. We could take that around and just amaze everybody. So I'm thinking it's just such amazing timing because as we're moving, I was bringing things over from the old house last night into the new house, and I found his CD collection, hundreds and hundreds of these classical CDs. Well, you know, your dad's the one who told me to write to classical music. No kidding. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, he did. And uh, uh, I have goosebumps right now. Daddy. Yeah, well, he's looking out for both of us. Let me tell you. <laughs> it's a big job. <laughs> and, you know, he always has. I mean, your dad's picture is right here in my den, my office. And... I look at it every day or at night when I turn out the lights, but I'll walk into my office and I'll say, good morning, Al. I want to talk about when Dad was dying and you came to stay with us and it was you and me, man. We were in that war room. I mean, my sister was Herculean, but she wasn't into blood and guts. She was amazing at what she did. There's always the different roles when you're caretaking for somebody and do you remember Dad's doctors? He had this horrific tumor on his face. So it was my job to clean the tumor every day, which was growing massively, as you remember. And well, I would was, clean it. It was like someone had stuck a half a football on the left side of Al's face. It was and unbelievable. When we used to change it, it would free bleed. And remember what the doctor said to us? He said, when it starts to bleed, put him in the bathtub because he could bleed out. And so here you and I were, my idol, the favorite person in my life. My dad was my hero and my best friend. And he's your best friend, like your big brother. And we're sitting there in the trenches with him thinking at any minute, this person we love more than anything is going to bleed out right in front of us. 
Yeah, and remember, I made a trip over to his doctors. Yeah, you know, because I thought, I thought, Jesus, can't we just have this surgically removed and cauterized? And the doctors said, no, that it wouldn't do any good. Yeah, there was nothing they could do. And man, did he have the best attitude, didn't he? I mean, he was loving and darling and partying until the very end and got a girlfriend. At 10 weeks before he died, he suddenly, you know, my mom was dead, so he suddenly attracts statuesque, five foot ten, baking, singing Ellen. Because that was my dad. That was was your dad. Your optimism. (laughs) Yeah. No, that was your dad, and he has played a huge part in the human being you've become. And because of that, not everybody has this warm, loving relationship with their parents. You know, I had, as I said, I was in therapy with Nathaniel Brandon, and I was in therapy with another therapist for about seven years, which really helped me, by the way, to uh, develop characters and everything, and I just loved it. And I don't know if it was Nathaniel or Andrea Brandt in L.A. who once said to me, The only person who doesn't need therapy is the person who had perfect parents. And they had to have two perfect parents in order for them not to need any therapy at all. And I thought to myself, well, that rules me out and probably rules out 99% of the world. Yeah, exactly. You know? I mean, a lot of us had one really great parent and one who wasn't as great. You were fortunate. And be thankful for what you had, what you learned, what you use, and how you've manifested what they taught you. Thank you. I know. I feel so blessed. As you know, I've been writing my story for a long time. And this thread of magic extends through the whole story and through this charmed inner circle that I think you were a big part of. You were one of the ringleaders of this charmed inner circle that we had. And I write that I felt that every time you came from L.A., you took one look at our little homespun play acting and said, you call this magic? I'll take your little carny sideshow and raise you a Cirque du Soleil. Because you would come to town. I always felt like our life was so rich and cultural. I don't mean rich as in wealthy because we weren't wealthy. But my parents, they had each had very tough childhoods and a lot of trauma and early death and all sorts of struggles in their childhoods and had decided to make my life, their life together and my life with my sister and all of us to be as beautiful and as cultural and sort of magical as possible. But then you would come into town. You would breathe in. And it got way more magical every time you would walk in. And I just think it's so interesting. We didn't even talk about some of the other charmed experiences you've had. But, you know, you had this largest first print run of your book. The book came to you magically. Your career was phenomenal. We haven't talked about your acting either. You were on soap operas the whole bit. But later, I remember I'm in college, and you go bet on horses at Santa Anita. And you pick the winners of nine out of nine races, which... Hasn't happened since, to my knowledge. And you won $1.7 million, the second largest purse in their history. So my question to you is, what do you attribute your magic to? 
you have to dare to be wrong in order to be right. And I've always known, I've always believed that I could manifest whatever it was I wanted. Where did you get that belief? Where did that come from? Well, you know, when I was six years old, I was diagnosed with leukemia. I weighed 26 pounds. And uh, I uh, was given six months to live. And I remember the doctor at St. Luke's in Chicago saying, Charlie, you're a very sick little boy, and you're going to die soon, but you get to go to puppy dog heaven. And I remember thinking, and I was sitting between my parents in front of this doctor's desk, and he was an older man with black horn-rimmed glasses and very jowly cheeks. And I remember thinking, I don't even get to go to real heaven. And I haven't had a dog, and I have to go to puppy dog heaven. So I remember my parents took me home that day from the hospital. And while I was in, I was in an intensive care unit with 10 children. And I was ranked the one most likely to die while I was in that unit. And yet the child next to me had been mauled by a German shepherd. And this poor little boy from Chicago cried and cried and screamed in pain constantly. And then one night it stopped. And the only light into the unit was through a glass panel in the door, a half panel, and a light from the hall. And we were in stainless steel beds with sides that they pulled up with bars. And I reached through my bars and grabbed his and pulled him over next to my bed. And there was a wonderful peace and calmness about uh, him for the first time. And it was my first experience with death. And a few minutes later, a gurney and two... uh, Young men came in, orderlies, and the nurse came back, and they lowered the sides on this bed for this little boy who had just gone through hell. And they untucked the sheets, and they flipped them over him. They lifted Mm -hmm. up, set him on the gurney, and just took him away. And not one of those adults showed any emotion. And from about that point on, I said, if I live through this, I can't trust adults. I can only trust me. And they took me home, and within 48 hours, I was in a Pontiac headed for Hurley, New Mexico, where my aunt and uncle lived, and I'd never met them. And my mother drove me there and dropped me off with people I didn't know 
to die. It was one of the best things that could ever have happened to me because my mother's oldest sister and her husband and their three kids showed me all the love a six-year-old kid could possibly handle. And about a year later, my mother came back and picked me up and took me home. But they never mentioned the leukemia, so I thought I was on borrowed time until I was about 12. I thought that I was going to die any day. And I remember I had sprained an ankle really badly that needed to be cast in a walking cast at 12 and was taken to the doctor. And I asked the doctor after he cast my leg, I said, well, how much time have I got left? (laughs) He said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know, I was diagnosed with leukemia at St. Luke's at six. It's been six years. They gave me six months. And, you know, do I have a week? Do I have a month? What have I got left? And he became absolutely unglued at my parents. And uh, they had never said that I had what was called a spontaneous involution, which is when you have a cancer and then it just mysteriously goes away. And it couldn't be explained. It happens. It happened to me. But, uh, you know, they never, ever mentioned it until one day in Malibu, my dad was uh, visiting and some friends were over and an actress friend of mine said, Stu, what was it like to raise Charlie? And he says, oh, my God. He said, at one point, he was diagnosed with leukemia, and that was the very first time I heard either one of my parents ever even mention the word. So believe in yourself. Believe that you can do anything. Mm -hmm. And the more you see it, the more you believe it, the more those good things are going to happen. I needed to win that pick nine at Santa Anita. No, I mean, I really needed it. I went to Santa Anita. I put the ticket in, a $576 ticket. I used a little bit more than half of the cash I had on hand. And after the seventh race, I called Marilyn, my wife, Boo, and I said, we're seven for seven. And she said, uh, I said, we have one horse in the eighth race and two in the ninth. I said, but I just realized that the two horses I have in the ninth race, one is 10 years old and one is nine years old. And I didn't pick that up when I was handicapping. And she says, okay, well, call me after the eighth. So I hung up. I won the eighth race. I called her back. She said, listen, tell me, Chuck, if you win this, Are you going to be home on time for dinner? Or or should I hold the roast? So my two horses in the ninth race ran one, two, and I won. And I won $1,704,000. 
So I had to go to the money room to get the money. I went there, and they said, well, would you like us to write you a check? And I said, well, how much cash can you give me? And they looked around, and they said, a little over half a million. I said, well, give me a half a million in cash and the rest in a check. So they stacked up this $534,000 in cash, and they had the check made out and everything, gave me the check. And you don't realize how much a half a million dollars, how much space it takes up. I said, well, don't you have something I can put this in? And one of the guys there said, well, God, I went to Ralph's today. I've got a Ralph's grocery bag, but I've got to take my groceries out of it. And I said, well, could I have your bag? He says, yeah, you can have it. So they stuffed 534000 worth of cash into the grocery bag and sent two security guards with me out to valet parking. I put the cash in the trunk. <laughs> I get in the car, and I head back towards West Hollywood. We were living on Sunset at the time. Yeah. And I get about eight miles from Santa Anita, and I get a flat tire. Now, summer, we had had a guest at the Bohemian Club that was the chief of the Golden Gate Division of the California Highway Patrol. And as you know, I wrote the debut of Chips. Yeah. I called Eric on the phone. I had a car phone. I'm in this four-door Mercedes. I'm off the side of the road. I call Eric. I said, Eric... I've had a flat tire. I'm on the 34, I think is what the freeway was. The 134? 134. And I'm just east of Pasadena. And I said, this is where I'm at. I've had a flat tire. And he said, well, I'm sorry. Call AAA. I said, you don't understand. I've got 534000 in cash in the car. He said, Chuck, what did you do? Rob a bank? I said, no, I just won the pick nine at Santa Anita. And, God. and I don't know if anybody's following me. He says, don't do anything. Stay in the car, lock the doors. I'll have somebody there in a minute. So two highway patrol cars pull up, one in front. One pulls in front of me and backs up to my front bumper. And one of the guys gets out and knocks on my window, and he says, Mr. Sailor? And I said, yes. He says, if you pop the trunk, we'll change that tire for you. So I pop the trunk. They change the tire. The guy comes back with a grin on his face from ear to ear. He says, I love your groceries. I'm going to start shopping at Ralph's myself. <laughs> and I said, well, thank you so much. I think I can make it home. He says, oh, no. Chief Speeds, Eric Speeds was the chief of the Golden Gate Division has told us we're to escort you home. So I had a CHP escort with a half a million dollars in the trunk home so that I could have roast that night with my wife, and we had a guest staying at the house. And the first thing we did is we got on the phone, and we called about 15 really close friends who were in desperate or dire straits financially. And we said, look, yep. you've got to come to the house tonight. We need to talk to you. And we yep. put together packets of money for everybody and had it there for them when they arrived. And yeah, you paid off people's divorces, 
you called me. I'm in my apartment at USC, and I have no money, right? I'm just bleeding poor mom and dad. And you called me, and you said, hey, kid, do you need anything? <laughs> and I was like, uh, I could use some new down pillows for my bed. And you're like, okay, how much do you need? And I said, uh, like 200 bucks. <laughs> and I got these gorgeous pillows from Macy's from you. Oh, well, I'm glad. I tried to help as many people as I possibly could. You know, I paid for some open heart surgery and I helped put some people's kids through college and helped people who were actors, actresses, writers who were really struggling and on their ass to at least have a respite from the drudgery of being broke. But Again, that's the philosophy of Second Son. Help everybody around you, all of your friends. Treat them like family, and uh, it'll come back in spades. You know, the old adage of what goes around comes around is really true. And I can tell you, as one who's had a lot come around, and I've been up and I've been down, and up is better, but... You can make it through anything if you believe in yourself. Don't ever lose that belief in yourself. Believe that you can accomplish anything that your heart desires and never give up that belief. Don't let anybody tell you differently. And to get that started... You can do something that someone years and years and years ago told me about. And she said, learn to do reversals at night before you go to sleep. I said, what's that? She said, well, just go through your day. And if something wasn't the way you wanted it to be, change it in your mind. So if somebody was really mean to you, when you get to that point in your day, Hear them saying the things that they should have said. Have the things that you wanted to happen in those situations happen even if they didn't. And you'll reprogram your subconscious. And you will get rid of the negative, And you won't carry it around with you. So go through your day. It takes a minute maybe two before you go to sleep at night, to change all those things that weren't the way you wanted them to be that day. And I've done that almost my entire life and live every day like it's your last. I did it for sure for six years. I know you can do it. And believe me, you'll live a fuller life and you'll benefit from it. Well, I've benefited from having you in my family my whole life. You were always the magic maker, always the magic maker, and you still are. Well, thank you. Thank you. I love you, Chuck. I love love you you too, darling. Thanks for listening, everyone. God, I had so many ahas in the taping of this interview. It makes me think that everyone should interview their loved ones because of the perspective it brings. For instance, 
I've always believed that if a person has an ache to create something, anything, that path will manifest no matter how unprepared or unschooled they appear to be. I used to wonder why I could hold such unlimited visions for people, for myself even. But I see more than ever, that comes from my dad and Chuck. Well, I hope a little bit of that magical, bigger-than-life thinking has, like fairy dust, landed on you. You can find Chuck and his page-turning novels over at charlessailor.com or on Amazon. And I'm blogging, as always, and leading writing retreats over at bookmama.com. Next month, my guest host Danny Shapiro and I will be bringing you the white hot truth teller who helped me create this podcast in October of 2015, Danielle Laporte. Both brilliant wordsmiths are currently on tour with their stunning new books. It'll be magic. Until next time, write on. Write on.